California was the first in the world to look into the desalination technology back in the 1950s and successfully commercialized it. But now, California won't build more desalination plants, despite being the leader in the industry. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. One of the reasons they said it was sea level rise, and they used a model that the IPCC itself rejected, and so did all the other scientists. But it gave them the results they wanted, because they can't just say, we don't like it. They have to give a reason. My guest today is Dr. Dallas Weaver, a pioneer in aquacultural science who holds one of the first patents in desalination technology. Today, he will explain the scientific reason California is rejecting desalination plants. The Coastal Commission and the State Energy Commission came up with a model that makes no sense at all. But it gives them a way to calculate how big the impact will be so they can bill you. Are we making decisions based on inaccurate science? We have a, a big problem with, you know, what is science nowadays and how to really understand it. Science is not easy. They want to say, follow the science, but it's very easy to make mistakes. Stay tuned for an insider's perspective. I'm Siamai Karami. Welcome to California Insider. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, you, sh you saw our, our coverage of the desalination plants yeah. not going through in California, and you wrote to us. So why are you motivated to come on the show? Why did you decide to come on, discuss this with us? Uh, because I'm uh, horribly frustrated with the misuse of pseudoscience that I keep seeing around because I do go to the literature and I do check on some of these claims being made. You know, when I see them in the newspaper and this and that. And I do click on the links or find the papers that the, the newspapers refer to and actually look them up. And when I go through them and I find garbage or nonsense, to me that's kind of tarnishing the star of science if you actually start checking the literature, you're talking a half a dozen people have, you know, made most of the contributions from the same institutions and tied in with the same contracts, with the same agencies, and it drifts off from reality. See, I have a background in reverse osmosis. When I started college in 58, uh, I went to work, um, for Dr. Sid Loeb, you know, as a part-time job to help pay the bills. And my job, uh, and this was on the original invention of reverse osmosis membranes that are used for this desalinization. De uh, taking the salt out of the water with membranes is like just a big filter. That's all it is. So you take the salt water, you put it through the filter, you got fresh water coming out the other side, the salt stays in this side and you take some of that water off and that's the brine that you put back in the ocean. And so you just take out the freshwater part. So it's like a super fine filter. Well, in the 50s, nobody knew how to make these things. And that's what he was working on, his research project. And so I was the guy, lo lowest one on the totem pole, of course, 
Uh, so you I were pretty young at that time. I, I was very young. I was only about 18. And so I had my head in the freezer with all these acetone vapors. There was no OSHA then. <laughs> 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 Making these membranes, uh, you know, on glass plates <laughs> with squeeds. Uh, anyway, and it was about a three-day process to make the membranes, um, you know, with all the washing, rinsing, cycling, and everything that they did. Well, I simplified it down to I could do it uh, to 15-minute cycle, which made it commercial, commercially viable to go reel-to-reel. -reel. And you patented this, right? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you have a patent in this space? In this space, yeah, that is still uh, used today. You know, they don't have to pay royalties on it, obviously, anymore. Uh, but... Yes, one of the original patents, and I actually got some money out of the university on it, a fair hunk of change. Today's episode is sponsored by Birch Gold. Is the rising inflation at odds with your goals of securing your savings and retirement? Don't let your savings and retirement be impacted by government policies. For over 5,000 years, gold has withstood inflation, geopolitical turmoil, and stock market crashes. Protect yourself with gold. You can make it yours now and own gold and silver in a tax shelter retirement account. Visit birchgold.com California to claim your free info kit on gold. With almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metal IRAs, Birchgold can help you do it today by visiting birchgold.com California. Now let's go back to the interview. What about the desalination? Because we have mm, all yeah. this seawater here. Yeah. And you know, we, we tried to have a few projects and they got shot. One of them got approved, the smaller one in, yeah, in Northern California. And then the bigger one that these investors spent 100 million plus in 20 years to try to get it approved yeah. and then it got rejected. Right. What is the science behind that? Because it, it was also going to hurt the fish, right? Is that, is that what the... It got shot down for regulatory reasons. Um, in that the excuse was that there's, uh, when you s bring this water in, you have the impinged fish, right? The, the ones that just get caught on the yeah, screen yeah. and stuff like that, and they get pulled out. Well, the power plants have that same problem, the big power plants, and they want to shut those down too, like San Onofre and uh, Diablo Canyon, et cetera. And so they use this impingement. The problem is, when you start looking at these ocean intakes, I started looking at that when I got a job after I finished my PhD up at uh, UC Davis. And then uh, I was working on environmental engineering having to do with redoing ocean intakes and ocean discharges on a power plant, big power plant. And so I got into this whole question of entrainment and impingement. How much is... How much fish are we taking yeah, in and how much damage, yeah, and how much damage this is this How much damage is it doing? Because I was doing the environmental impact report. This is back in the 70s before, you know, it turned into a factory. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I looked at both the uh, entrainment and the impingement we knew because we already had a plant and so we had data because every fish that's ever caught on those screens has been weigh identified, weighed, and measured and counted. 
the amount of fish that come off of these screens isn't enough to pay for the fuel bill for one day of a commercial fishing boat with a year of harvesting because they wow. save all these things up wow. you know and my employees would take an extra saturday off and go down and count them because i had all these marine biologists you know wow. <laughs> who were qualified to do all wow. the counting and it was so funny to look at bureaucratic reactions because they were redoing that power plant down the street, the one that where they yeah. want to put the RO facility. And they were just uh, actually improving the plant so it would make less NOx, uh, air pollution. So they're just upgrading that. But they decided they needed a new study of the in impingement and entrainment uh, the government agencies yeah. did. This is just for the power plant. And some people wanted to get rid of the power plant, and so they thought this was, well, we'll charge them an extra $3 million to do this study to see if it's any different. And so I asked my little question. I said, well, uh, how many pounds of fish are we talking about being impinged at this plant that you want to do $3 million worth of study on? Because you have the data. We, you know, because they've been measuring it. And he didn't answer. Then I got a chance to ask a question again. I asked him the same question again. How many pounds of fish are we talking about? And then he gave me, you know, a misdirection answer. And then I just stood up and blurted out, in that book in front of you is that data. Tell us how many pounds of fish are being impinged. And that forced him to look it up, and it was a couple thousand pounds, which I knew it was. Um, that seemed to change the mood in the room that impingement wasn't the real issue. So then they shifted to entrainment, because the data we have tons of data on impingement that that is not an issue, mm -hmm. period. Not enough fish for a sports fishing boat, <laughs> you know, and most of it was bait fish and it wasn't enough you know I would take more bait on the <laughs> my friend's boat <laughs> hmm. um, and so it was you know just a, it's a nothing um, so then the entrainment um, and so they got their three million dollar study and of course I read it but uh, meanwhile uh, back in the early 70s I was doing this power plant one and we did a full entrainment study. And, you know, it was interesting, interesting research. But then I, when I started analyzing the data, the actual amounts of biomass and what effect that it'd have on the ecology, et cetera, calculated out to be near nothing using the model I was using of any significance would not have any effect. Um, and so the same thing should apply to this RO unit. So this is the desalination plant that got shut down in Yeah, in Huntington, Huntington Beach. Beach, the HB1, which was using the same intake structure of, of that the power plant had, which was 250 so MGD in intake structure, which had a velocity cap on it. So they shut that uh, down because of? Uh, well, one of the reasons they said it was 
uh, sea level rise, and they used a model that was incorrect. Because, it, well, of course, that model puts my house six feet underwater, you know. So the assumption, but the sea level is rising. Rising. And if we allow this plant to sit here. It'll get flooded, and they have laws that say that we have to build the infrastructure for so many years. And if, if there is, okay, if, if there is And this would be uh, our infrastructure. Of course, it would also flood my house and everybody <laughs> around. So what was the model? Was it that sea level will go up by how much? Does uh, they modeled that by, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, uh, but it was like um, six feet, in, you know, in a very short period of time. It was about 10 times faster than it's going up now. So if six feet, the whole Orange County or a lot of California <laughs> will go underwater. Well, especially that whole yeah, area that down. That whole area will be, <laughs> a lot of the beachfront properties will be gone. They should be worth nothing now. Right, If that's right. the model. If that model is correct. Well, it turns out, being the curious scientist, I looked up their model, <laughs> you know, and tried to find out how did they come up with the uh, sea level rise rising so fast and it had to do with one of the Antarctic uh, ice sheets being undercut with this model that said that that the IPCC itself rejected. So they've used a model that they rejected them is that? The IPCC rejected and so did all the other scientists. But it gave them the results they wanted. So essentially you're saying <laughs> they already had decided to shut this down they were looking for a scientific reason right. to shut it down. Right. Because they can't just say, we don't like it. They have to give a reason or want to give a reason. They wanted to use as a reason the entrainment. So if the science that is presented, and, and most people want to follow it, you know, that's the, the way people are. They want to, when the scientists come out and say, this is the model, we do trust the scientists. Um, it's it's m probably good to get an idea of how big the desalinization in industry is now from those early days back in the 50s that I was working on it. It's been growing at 15% a year compounded. Wow. And so right now around the world, countries like Israel gets over half their uh, water supply from desalinization. That's half of wow. it right there. <laughs> you know, so these are big numbers. The total uh, in Singapore is over 25%. Malaysia tried to shake Singapore down on the price. And they said, the hell with you, and put in RO plants, mm. <laughs> you know. So people are doing these. These, these are oh. getting more and more popular. Yes, to the amount of flow you know, because of this compounding thing, the amount of flow of RO membrane produced water right now worldwide exceeds the flow of the Sacramento and, uh, and Colorado rivers combined, their average flow. That's a lot of water. So yeah, it is, it is. And uh, why are we not doing this? Like, so why did this get shut down? And you're saying the technology came from here, like you were part of inventing yes. this. Oh, so and, and, and you know where the energy recovery systems come from that are used around the world? San Lorenzo. 
<laughs> California. So, <laughs> so, so what happened here? It seems like we're kind of using science to shut these things down, but it's our own technologies that we created. The rest of the world are using them, but we are somehow finding Sh models. We're shooting sh ourselves in the foot. If you find this discussion interesting, I actually had another 20 minutes with Dallas on the Delta smelt and the state letting the water into the ocean. Go to insiderca.com to watch this exclusive segment. Now let's go back to the interview. How do we get out of this in California? Because it looks like we are making technology or we made these technologies, we innovate it, now we don't use it ourselves, we're giving it to other countries. But how do we break out of this cycle? Uh, I'm not real sure, uh, you know, because we have a, a big problem with, you know, what is science nowadays and how to really understand it. Science is not easy. And they, they want to say, follow the science, but it's very easy to make mistakes, you know, like excluding variables and then your model doesn't fit. To do models in science, you have to have models that you check to see if they give the what you ex what they should give so are you saying that we need to have more common sense when we're analyzing the science like so the the state leaders that are looking and watching well, these things and making decisions do we need to have more common sense when we're looking at this science are, are we trusting too much to people that are giving us the science because no no it's not not a matter of too much trust. It's just, uh, well, the state leaders are so poor at science generally that they don't know. You know, they don't know what even makes sense. You know, because they, they don't know when somebody s says. Which makes sense because most of us don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, that's uh, you average know, people would not if understand. If I come to you and say, this plant is going to kill 60 million larvae a year. And what do you think? Oh, that's a lot of impact. 60 million larvae a year. But the problem comes going from larvae to impact on fish in the ocean, the actual ecologies. That's not easy. That gets very hard. And this is where the Coastal Commission made some, and the State Energy Commission, um, came up with a model that makes no sense at all. But it gives them a way to calculate how big the impact will be so they can bill you for money. Um, that's why they did it. But they, the problem is uh, larval fish, you know, these baby fish, the, most of these fish, they're not like land animals that we're more familiar with that have fairly low reproductive rates and well-developed young. forever, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah for, for, for land animals, like yeah. it takes forever to, to yeah. yeah, and they don't have very many. So the populations don't increase dramatically or decrease. On most of these marine things, they have very, very, very small young. And lots of them. For example, that shrimp you ate the other day, right? If a full-grown Van Amai shrimp, farm shrimp, which is 
probably what you ate. <laughs> uh, I don't eat shrimp, but good guess. Try, good try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't eat shrimp? Okay. But any of the marine animals probably you do eat has huge reproductive potential. That one little shrimp could produce 200,000 eggs every two weeks. Wow. Wow. You know, these things really crank them out. So when the numbers are big to the policymakers, right. it sounds scary, but it sounds it's scary. Different. But that's one spawn off of one shrimp, you know. Um, so the numbers sound scary, but the numbers mean nothing virtually because the probability of survival of one of those shrimp noplii in the wild is uh, maybe one out of. 200,000. That's all it has to survive. You know, so you're talking, you know, 99.9999 plus percent mortality in the ocean. And that mortality, that occurs for all of these fish and stuff like that that have all these eggs. Fish and shrimp and crabs. And they all have huge numbers of eggs. Uh, and so they all have these huge mortalities. Uh, a wise old um, marine biologist that I met down at a meeting and we were sitting around talking, he said, you know, nothing ever dies in the ocean. It's eaten alive before it's dead. You know, that is the fate of... So this is normal. But this we is kind normal. Of, That's we the kind way of come in and we kind of try to fix it without really knowing, without even really putting it into context. In the context, these so marine ecologies, this entrainment stuff, these are ecologies that are competitive and very, very high mortality, but highly variable mortality. For example, if I take seawater and I run it through a fine enough filter to get out all this zooplankton and bigger stuff, you know, I can leave the algae in and bacteria. And I fill up a pond with it. And then I put in, uh, say, red drum larva or redfish larva, you know, which are easy to spawn. One redfish will crank out half a million larva or wow. a million larva. Wow. Uh, you know, a big one. Big one. And so I put those million larva in that pond, right? I can have survivals of 75%, you know, to a size big enough I can stock them out in the wild. And which is why once the fish gets fairly big, he has a much better survival probability, but he's eating all the smaller guys, mm. <laughs> right? Um, but uh, these marine ecologies, this ecology they're talking about that they're trying to say, okay, we lose 80 million larvae. What effect this has? Well, what's the probability of those larvae surviving? We don't know, but we know it's low. We know that that entire ecology down there in the ocean is dominated, dominated by predation, somebody eating somebody else and larval fish eat each other, even their own species. You know, they are definitely cannibalistic. And 
look at it from the point of view of a larval fish. You know, he's just a new fish. He got hatched out, right? He's got an eye on each side of his head, which gives him two-dimensional vision, right? It's like a camera eye. But when you calculate it out, you find out, you know, he only has so many light sensors in that, you know, the film uh, resolution. And that his brother, one centimeter away, um, appears as two pixels in his eye. This is on a zebrafish. One centimeter away, his brother's two pixels, right? Now, he sees a rotifer in front of him, you know, but that rotifer is only two millimeters away. And so it appears as 50 pixels on his eyes and on both eye, you know. They don't look as forward as they look mainly to the side. Um, but it's 50 pixels. That gives him a little bit of resolution. So he has a decision to make with a few thousand neurons in his brain. Do I eat that rotifer or not? Because if he eats that rotifer and those two pixels that he saw out there is not his brother, but it's another fish that is twice as far away. He's two centimeters away and he's eight times your weight, which means he's going to eat you when he sees you move. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> These are complicated decisions for a little larva. <laughs> <laughs> Life or death decision. Yeah. So this, with this ecology totally dominated by predation, you know, everybody eating everybody, uh, when you change the density of the fish, it makes a huge difference. And see, they made a model when the Coastal Commission and the Energy Commission made this model. They got these professors and business guys that are do this research together. And they came up with this model and they call it uh, an extended transport model, area production foregone model. And buried in the implicit mathematics of that thing, of that model, is an assumption that if I kill all these larvae, you know, by going through the desalinization facility or the power plant, uh, that the effect is proportional to the amount of total larvae in the ocean that I removed. And that it's linear. And, but that's not the reality. When I take that cubic meter out of the ocean, right, it gets replaced from water further out that might not have larvae in it, hmm. right? So they're good at reproducing. They're reproducing a yeah, lot. Yeah, but, or if it's a power plant, I take that water, I run it through the power plant, kill all the larvae and put that water out. But now that water blob of water that I put out there now doesn't have any predators in it either. Hmm. Right? You know, since predators have to eat more than <laughs> prey than their own So weight. there's a lot more out there that could get eaten naturally. Yeah. That, that the impact of these plants are not much. Well, no, the plants would not, 
if you properly included it, like I said, with the red drum, I can have survivals of 50% if I get rid of the predators. Well, both the RO unit and the power plant get rid of the predators too. So the predators will come as a part of this mix. Yeah, but they all come back in, but they come in diluter. There's fewer of them, hmm. right? And they say that, oh, that fewer of them is bad. Well, it's not bad because uh, fewer of them, it's easier to survive when you have fewer predators. So then they can grow more, right? Is that Faster, yeah, because yeah, the algae always, yeah. it does its own thing really fast. <laughs> yeah, so they grow fast. Yeah. And do you have, with all this is going on, do you have any advice for our state leaders, what they should do with this? There's a lot of scientific things that come to people's tables when we're making decisions, especially about the environment. And these decisions are critical because if we make the wrong decision, we might be out of, we might cause the farmers to move out. We might have less food supply from here. We might have less power. Do you have any advice for state leaders that are getting these 400, 500 page reports and a scientist <laughs> is telling them what to do? Uh, well, most of them don't have the time to really go through it. I would uh, think that most pol politicians, if they're smart, would get a good scientist to back them up, to just go over some of the stuff to say, hey, wait a minute, this just doesn't really make sense. They didn't look at this, they didn't look at that. Um, you know, because spotting those things usually is not easy. You know, you brought up the, the question of the brine going in that people want to make a big thing out of. Well, that's definitely not a big thing for California because we have this huge, what they call the advection term. That's the currents coming down mm -hmm. the coast. They are so big that when everybody else is dying of heat, those of us that are reasonably close to the coast have a very comfortable existence, right? <laughs> you know, some of the best in the world. That's because we've got this bloody refrigerator out there. And the water flow is so huge that it just cancels everything. The water gets changed every 30 days or so out there. All the water between here and the Far Islands gets changed. But they're not looking into this. They're not bringing this into the assumption when they are rejecting these kind of projects. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like they've also rejected, uh, they passed a whole bunch of laws against aquaculture in California, which is actually my field um, that I spent, you know, once, once I quit doing the environmental engineering and teaching it and stuff like that, I built my own business, you know, raising fish and all that stuff. And uh, at the time, back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, California was leading in the world, virtually in aquaculture, and much of the knowledge and the automated systems. I had a fully automated system in 1980. Wow. You know, so we had them automated. We had everything. We were leading the way. Uh, which is why I went to China. <laughs> to show them, to look at what they were doing, yeah. Yeah, uh, see where they were, you know, relative. Um, and anyway, right now, aquaculture worldwide has been growing at mm, double-digit rates for four decades. 
And as a result, aquaculture, aquatic animals, farmed animals, uh, aquatic animals, now is larger than the wild fishery for as a seafood supply. That's how big that industry has grown. And I understand in terms of meat on the table, it is now bigger than cattle. And if you look at raising fish versus, say, raising pigs and chickens, pigs and chickens have to stand up and they have to keep warm, right? Because they're very warm-blooded. That means they're burning energy to keep warm. And they're building a lot of tendon and bone to stand up. Fish don't do that. So a salmon, I mean, he's practically all filet, <laughs> you know, when you yeah. look at him, right? And it takes one pound dry weight of feed to make a pound of live salmon. And it takes three pounds of dry weight of feed to make a pound of pig, two pounds to make a pound of chicken. The feed stuffs are all similar, you know, soybean protein, corn protein, this and, you know, very similar. And, you know, uh, they, and we can make complete synthetic diets that are even vegan diets to feed fish. They don't have to eat fish. Are we not doing this in California anymore? We are kind of restricting this industry or? Oh, we've throttled this industry. We've had zero growth in the United States for 40 years, while the rest of the world, it has become a dominant industry. Because of the science? Because of the pseudoscience, essentially? That yeah, the uh, environmentalists that say, oh, it's so bad, blah, 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 blah. And they won. The activists have won. And in California, for example, that they've made some catch-22s that makes it impossible to do open ocean net pens. You know, if you drive south of the border, you know, as you drive along that coastline down to Ensenada, I don't know whether you've yes. driven that. You look over the side, you see all those net pens? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You go over they're the growing, yeah, they're growing the, yeah. Totosanos Island, yeah. they're all over there, south of there, they're all over. They're down in La Paz, all over. They're doing it. We're not. Why aren't we? It's the same water. It doesn't change when that border is there. And we are an area that could have you know, Long Beach Aquarium did a study where they said about $2 billion industry. And I think it could be five. You know, when I did it, you know, looking at what could be done. Um, and $5 billion industry is a significant industry, especially when you have a market of 30 million people that want to eat fresh fish. You know, and you could provide them with fresh fish but you can't get permission for it because the uh, PEIR is not completed. That's the uh, is that an environmental programmatic environmental report, which has to be done first before they can even think about issuing permits. Dallas Weaver, semi-retired scientist. It was great to have you on California Insider. 
wonderful to be here. Thank you. We want to ask you to sign up to our California Insider email list. You will receive exclusive updates on our upcoming documentary and get the latest inside stories on everything that's happening in California. Go to InsiderCA.com and sign up 